How many of you guys saw footage in the last couple of days of rockets that were coming in over Tel Aviv in Israel? You see those um, rockets that light up the night sky? Uh, in a short period of time, like a day's time, there was over a thousand rockets that were fired in over the city of Tel Aviv. And they're, they're fired by terrorists. Do you know what their objective is? Do you know what the objective is of those rockets? To kill. To kill anyone they can kill, right? To bring terror. It's destruction. And you stand there and you look. And I haven't been there in person. I only see the videos. But you look up at the night sky and it looks like a fireworks display. As the Iron Dome sends these missiles up there to shoot down the rockets before they hit a sensitive target and potentially take lives. They're able to shoot down over 90% of them. But I was just struck with the fact that as you look up at the sky, you see this really cool display of like smoke and flashing lights. It looks so cool. And it might be easy to think that that's just a really fantastic display in the sky. It's actually a war. Did you know we're in a war? Did you know we're in a war this afternoon? And there's somebody who's shooting rockets at you in an attempt to destroy your life. He doesn't care how he accomplishes it as long as he takes you out. And I hope you guys took the words this morning to heart. Because there might be some of us sitting here who think that everything's good. We think life is great And it feels more like a game or a fireworks display than it does a war. But we've forgotten there's an enemy of our souls who is after us. And he is intent on killing and destroying. And he's being successful in some of your lives. Some of you are in a fight for your life with pornography or immorality. Some of you are in a fight for your life with bitterness. And it's easy to get distracted and think, we're good. God loves me. He accepts me just the way I am. Jesus said, those who hear my word and do it. They're my true disciples. Those who hear the word and do it. I was curious. um, What time is it now? About 2.20. So 2.30. 2.30, you have an appointment with someone at a coffee shop. Anybody from the New Testament, okay? You get to choose. We're only, we're only going to say it can't be Jesus, right? Because I know that's a terrible disappointment because honestly nobody comes in even at a close second, right? But it can't be Jesus. He gave us his Holy Spirit when he left. And he said it's better for him to leave and to give us his Spirit. So anyone else in the New Testament, you get four hours with them at at a coffee shop this afternoon. You get to ask them any questions you want to ask them, and you have one minute to decide. If you have a pen, grab a pen and write down who it is. Just write it there on the table. If you don't, maybe just uh, pull out your phone and, and write it on your phone. That way you won't change your mind later. You're going to get to ask them any questions you want to ask them about their life, what they've experienced, questions you might have about your own life, um, how to walk out the Christian life, or any other random questions that you have. You'll get to ask them whatever you want. 
And you'll get four hours with them this afternoon. Do you all figure out who it is? Just raise your hand if you thought of someone that, that you've chosen. Okay, not quite everybody there yet. I'll give you just a little bit more time. But they're just about to walk into the coffee shop, and you'll get to sit down with them and have a one-on-one. Okay, y'all have someone? Do I volunteer who it is? Anybody? Okay, so we've got two for Paul. Anybody else? Peter? Who said Peter? Yeah, what, what would you uh, like to talk to Peter about? I'm curious why you chose him. Okay. <laughs> All your friends laugh, right? Anybody else? Yes. John. Okay. How many? How many went for John? Uh, quite a few. I'm not surprised. Is there a reason you chose John? Okay. That that would uh, he would make close to the top of my list for me. Anybody else? Anybody have somebody different? Mary Magdalene. Why? Yeah, she's a she's one of the characters of my one of my favorite stories in, in the New Testament. It's after the resurrection of Jesus. She's there at the garden, weeping, because the one she had set her hope on had died, and now she didn't even know where his body was. Somebody had obviously stolen it, and she's there weeping. And she turns around and she she hears her name, Mary. Such an incredible story of how Jesus was personal. Anybody have someone different? I'll take one more. Yes. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, was there a reason? <laughs> Not hard to guess, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Mary, what was it like to tell Jesus to pick up his toys? So... I, I chose Paul, and it wasn't fair because I had advance notice. But the reason I chose Paul, how many of you chose Paul? Well, wow, quite a few. The reason I chose Paul is because I have a, there's a bunch of questions that I would like to ask him about the gospel, about the things that he wrote. Do you realize he wrote a large section of the New Testament, right? Uh, in, in a modern translation, it comes out to usually like 80 pages or so. Um, most, most of his writings are, well, actually all of his writings that, that survive, if you compile them, they're still shorter than a lot of the writings of, you know, um, Plato and Aristotle and great philosophers. And yet they have shaped modern culture probably more than any other collection of writers, of writings in history. All of his surviving writings have been recognized by the New Testament church as God breathed, the inspired scripture. Um, one of the things that you see in, in classical literature, anytime there's a discussion of a great literary work where, where critics are trying to figure out you know, what uh, a piece of writing 
intends to communicate. There is an accompanying discussion trying to decipher the author's life, figuring out what was, what was about this author that made him or her write this kind of stuff. Um, what did he really mean when he said this line? Was he speaking to a contemporary issue or was, was there a broader principle he was addressing? Um, was the author referring to maybe an inner struggle that she had in her life uh, and, and she depicted it through this novel? And what did she intend to communicate through that? We're always wanting to look beyond the writing and figure out what did the author mean. Right. We want to know what that person meant when they wrote that. And I'd have several of those questions for Paul. Now, there is a caveat here, and that is that Paul's writings don't just have a, one author. Who is the main author of the writings of Paul? Anybody? Holy Spirit. God breathed the word through Paul, right? So we can't just look at the life of Paul to find out what his writings were intended to mean. Uh, but it's also important to remember that the people who wrote the Bible, there's a whole bunch of authors that, that put work and sweat into writing this book that is God-inspired. And they were not just robotic stenographers quickly jotting down inspirations on parchment. On the contrary, many of them were writing truth that God had revealed to their heart already. They understood many times what they were writing. Now, I'm sure some of the prophets probably wrote things that they didn't fully understand but kind of like when a preacher gets up and preaches the things that God has put on his heart, a lot of times that person has received a revelation of the truth that he's trying to communicate to the audience already. And so sometimes when, you know, when Dan's up here and he says something and, and you're like, I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, you can probably go to him and say, Dan, what exactly did you mean when you said what you did? And he can probably tell you what he meant. All right, unless he was just um, mindlessly parroting uh, what God had given him. That's likely not the case, right? So we do need to look at the context of how Scripture was written, who it was written to, sometimes who it was written by, how they lived their life, how their life exemplified the truth that they received, the revelation that they received from the Holy Spirit. The revelation that they Depend on these pages was also lived out in their life. Not perfectly, but we can see the intent of a lot of their writings by looking at their, at their life. That's one of the purposes of the book of Acts, right? Book of Acts tells us what the apostles did after they had received the command of Jesus to go into Jerusalem, to wait for the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they went out and they were witnesses to Jesus. And we can see an account of how they lived that out in shoe leather. It helps us understand some of the things they wrote later on in, in their letters to the churches. Now, sometimes theologians become so entangled with trying to understand the intent of the human author that they miss the intent of the divine author. And it's important that we don't do that. It's important that we don't just look at the life of Paul and say, well, let's see how Paul lived this out so that we can see what he meant. We need revelation from the Holy Spirit to understand the word, not just understand the author. Conversely, if we don't seek to understand what the human author understood, sometimes we end up missing the divine intent of Scripture. So there has to be a balance of understanding 
the context into which Scripture came and the thought process of the human author and of receiving truth that transcends human authorship. When you read the Word of God, you should always be conscious of the fact this is not just human writing. These are God's words to us. And they can only be understood through revelation of the Holy Spirit because if you get them and you try to understand them with your human intellect alone, it's not going to work. You'll end up somewhere they weren't intended to take you. So all that said, Paul's letters and Luke's narrative in Acts where he talks about some of the things that Paul did reflect how he lived out the revelation of the gospel that had been entrusted to him. So what we're going to do today is we're going to just look at the life of Paul, look at some of his background, the history before his conversion, who was he, where was he from, what did he believe, what was he doing uh, when God got a hold of him. But my point is not just that we understand Paul better, okay? Because if, if that's the only thing that happens, this is really a waste of time. My hope is that in understanding what happened to Paul, and the revelation he received, we can read the word of God and it becomes clearer to us. And the Holy Spirit can take the truth that, that transcends all of culture and context and make it applicable to our lives. There's a lot of winds of doctrine nowadays. That's one of the things Paul warned about in his letters to uh, some of the young pastors he was writing to late in his life. He warned them that there were going to be deceptive teachers who come in and twist the gospel. They take the truth and they twist it just enough so that it still sounds like the truth, but it's going to take you somewhere entirely different from where the truth would take you. Paul was a contextual theologian. That is, he was addressing real world issues and the worldviews of people around him. So to understand the things that he wrote, we also need to understand to a degree some of the things that were going, around, going on around Paul. This doesn't mean that we relativize his teachings and say, well, when Paul wrote that, he was probably writing to the Corinthians because they had this set of problems. And so that just applies to the Corinthians and it doesn't really apply to us or to the Romans or the Galatians or whoever else. People do that all the time. God wants to take that truth and make it applicable to your life and my life as well. But we can see how Paul answered philosophies and worldviews of the Jewish community and the Greco-Roman world around him with the gospel that was simultaneously transcendent to culture and relevant to the culture that it came into. In his letters, we can see what was some of the things that were most important to Paul. That's one of the reasons I would like to have four hours at a coffee shop with him. I would like to say, Paul, with all the stuff that you experienced in your life, because you have an amazing array of experiences in church planting, in seeing miracles, unlike what most Christians across the world have seen, in seeing the power of God manifested through your life and through other people. You have all these experiences. Now, after all that, can you just boil it down and tell me what I should be focusing on? Tell me how I should live now. How should I live that out now? Well, good news. We've got some letters from Paul that do just that. And we'll look at them later. Today we can benefit from the letters that he wrote to some of the churches he planted and to some of the young men that he discipled, the men that walked with him in his ministry, that got to watch the things that Paul did. And then we get to see what it was 
that Paul focused on when he wrote to them. Now, without Paul's letters, there's a lot of stuff that we wouldn't understand clearly about about Christianity. Sure, the Holy Spirit can reveal truth to us, but he many times does so through the word. Do you know of any heathen tribe over in Papua New Guinea who just received a miraculous revelation from the Holy Spirit about the gospel without a human medium using the word of God? I don't. However, there are many tribes who were completely lost and completely blind to the gospel, completely blind to the reality of who God is, when the word of God came in through a faithful person who just opened it up and said, here it is, and this is what it says, and this is what it means, it transformed those cultures. Why does God do that? Why does he still go back to the word when we have revelation from the Holy Spirit? Why does he still go back to what is written? Why did Jesus himself rely so heavily on this? Some of the things we wouldn't understand without Paul's letters, we might not understand what salvation really means, or justification. How are we justified? Is it through works, or through faith, or a combination of the two, or is it faith apart from works? What exactly is the gospel? What does the gospel mean? What does a saved life look like? What is sanctification? If you're sanctified and indwelled by God's Spirit, Shouldn't you be living a sinless life now? And what to do when you realize that's not the case? What role does the Old Testament, the, the, the entirety of the law and the Old Covenant, what role does that play in the believer's life? So many of these questions are answered for us in Paul's letter to the churches. You know why? Because they had the same questions. They had the same questions that you and I do. As they started their walk with Jesus, there were practical questions that came up, and those questions weren't always just answered directly by the Holy Spirit. They came, the answers oftentimes came through letters and through the Word. So what was it about this man that allowed God to use him to such an incredible degree? Why did God call Paul who was not even a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't one of the twelve who had followed Jesus around and listened to his words and seen him do all these miracles like Peter and John and the other apostles had. Why did God call Paul? Why did Paul end up having arguably the most impact on the New Testament church that would last through the next two millennia? Who was Paul? Where did God call him from? Well, Acts chapter 9 has the story of where Saul came from and how God met him. We know he was a Jew and he was not only an ordinary Jew, he was an extremely devout Jew. As he says to the Galatians later on in his letter to them, he says, I was advancing in Judaism Beyond many of my own age, among my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, when you hear the word Judaism, you might have kind of a negative connotation associated with Judaism, right? It's like the people back there that still keep the law and they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Kind of like we view religious, kind of a religious person. It kind of comes with some baggage. Well, back then, for Paul, Judaism was a good word. 
Because these were the people who believed in the one true God who had created heavens and earth and who said, you shall not have any other gods before me. All the rest of the world just worshipped whatever they wanted to worship. They made idols. They practiced all kinds of sexual immorality and, and terrible stuff. The Jews, on the other hand, knew that there was one true God and he had given them his law and said, this is how you should live. If you want to follow me, you keep these laws and you will live by them and you will be blessed if you keep them. That's who Paul was. He was one of those people. He was extremely zealous about keeping the law and about defending the truth about the one true God. Now, in his early upbringing, Saul was not raised in Jerusalem. He was born actually in Tarsus, which was way north, uh, northwest of Jerusalem, kind of up around the sea. It would be uh, southern Turkey now. He was born somewhere between 5 and 10 AD, so just shortly after Jesus was born. Um, the city of Cilicia in the southeast corner of modern Turkey, and he found himself as a Jewish transplant in a Greek and Roman culture. So Tarsus could trace its history back 2,000 years, a very old city, um, very rich in culture and politics and philosophy and industry. One of its industries, actually, that it was famous for was um, making textiles from goat's hair. So that's very likely why Paul's family or Saul's family, um, why they were tent makers, because they had these uh, goat's hair textiles, which could be used for making shelters. Um, Tarsus was similar to Athens. What do we know about Athens? Remember when Paul went there um, in, in Acts? It says how he went there and they were, what, philosophers? And they spent all their time just hearing about something new, studying philosophy, all these um, great new ideas. They were great thinkers, right? They loved to argue and debate. Well, Tarsus was a lot like that too. In fact, just like a hundred years before this, um, about half the people from Athens moved to Tarsus because the Athenians had ticked off the Romans over something. Can't remember what it was, but they ended up having to kind of relocate to Tarsus. Um, and they took their philosophies with them. There they settled and there they lived out their allegiance to Rome because right now Rome was everything Rome ruled the world the Romans were notorious for one thing they had to be the uncontested authority so in Paul's time Saul's time everyone all the way from Syria to Spain was under Rome and they were required to worship some of the Roman gods. Now, the Romans had many gods, to be fair. They worshipped all kinds of gods. But there was one god in particular that everyone was required to worship, to make obeisance to. Anybody know who that was? That god. It's a person. Caesar. They had to call him Lord Caesar. Well, you think a good Jew would want to say Lord Caesar when God had said, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have any other gods before me. The Jews had been conquered by the Romans, at least outwardly, but many of them were willing to give their lives for what they believed about God. And rather than bow to Rome and say, Lord Caesar, the way they were required to, they would rather give their lives. Well, the Romans were although they were notorious for wanting to be the, the uncontested 
the uncontested um, rulers, they also knew how to make a good deal. So they got together with some of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who told them, tell you what, you don't require us to say, Lord Caesar, because our religious laws prohibit it. We have one Lord, one God. We can only worship him. If you agree to let us get by without saying, Lord Caesar, then we will agree to pray to our God for Rome and for Caesar. And the Romans said, deal. But there were lots of other pressures for the Jews. They couldn't just live in their isolated communities practicing their religion as they did when they were alone in the land of Israel. They had all these Greeks and Romans and these Greek and Roman influences around them that put lots of pressure on them. There was pressure in religious ceremonies that would occur. There was pressure in business dealings, stuff that was kind of sketchy that they couldn't always participate in. There was food that was sold in the market that was sacrificed to idols, and they weren't sure. Some of them would refuse to eat that food if, they, if there was a possibility that it had been sacrificed to idols. And some of them would think, well, it's, it's probably okay as long as you don't know it. So it was really messy. Where Saul, where Saul grew up in Tarsus. And there's something that's important to understand about this culture is it's not like North Carolina or Montana or Pennsylvania or anywhere else around here where you can kind of live in your isolated little bubble, right? You have your friends on social media and maybe a group of people that you hang out with and go to church with. And you can kind of isolate yourself from everybody else. That's not how it was. When I was a kid, uh, we moved to Honduras not too far from uh, where Dan lived. In fact, I remember hearing about Dan. <laughs> they were like dangerous people. They, they taught stuff that was dangerous and so it like struck fear in my heart. So we were about 15 miles back in the mountains from there. And people would come to your house all the time. So a normal day, you might have 40 or 50 people show up at your house. And they would watch what you were doing. And they would, you know, impose into your life. There was no isolation the way we have it here. That's the way it was when, when Saul grew up. There, was, there were community interactions all the time. You didn't live in an isolated social sphere. So there was lots of pressure. And Saul, being a transplant and having a, a father who was a Roman citizen, but a Jewish mother, being Jewish by birth, he had all these pressures on him. So he knew what it was like to be a transplant and how to have to stand up for what you believe, even when it was really uncomfortable, how to defend your beliefs, how to maybe stand in the square and debate with the philosophers about different religions and different ways of thinking. This was part of his upbringing. Now, it wasn't just clearly cleanly cut into Roman or, or Greek communities versus Jewish, but there were lots of, uh, lots of different subsets among the Jews of how they practiced their religion. Among the diaspora, there were normal Jews who uh, maybe just, just performed the minimum of the law, kind of what they could get by with comfortably, some of the, some of the easier rituals, um, but people who had largely assimilated into the cultures around them. And there were others who were much more strict about keeping the law. And they had their reasons for this because they believed that as the oppressed people of God, 
who were now, many of them were scattered out of, out of uh, Israel. They were living abroad and they were under Roman rule. They believed that God was going to send a deliverer to get them out of that situation and to restore the kingdom to Israel. And they were right. So they said, if God is going to deliver us, he's given us some instructions. He's given us the law. And if we expect him to send the Messiah to deliver us, we had better keep the law. So there were all these factions of really strict Jews who said, well, this is the best way to keep the law. And these are the most important laws. We know of some of them, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They were some of the strictest ones. Now, Pharisee probably has a negative connotation for most of us too, right? Um, But think of it as paralleling kind of Bible-believing Christian, right? Somebody who believes in the truth and who's uh, assured of what they believe and they're not afraid to stand on it and defend it. That's who the Pharisees were as well. They believed in the law and they were set on defending the law of God. Uh, Saul described himself later as circumcised on the eighth day, check, so that's good, right? That's what the law commanded, of the people of Israel, okay, so he's part of God's chosen people, that's good, of the tribe of Benjamin, yeah, Benjamin was a good tribe, that's also good, a Hebrew of Hebrews, yep, he's identifying with God's special Hebrew people, the ones that were delivered out of Egypt miraculously, so far so good, as to the law, a Pharisee, and we're like, ew, Saul, why you say that? Well, for him, it was a good thing, right? The Pharisees were actually really concerned about keeping all of the law. Now, we look at them through the lens of Jesus, who looked not on the outward, but he looked right past that into their hearts. And he said, you guys are really, really concerned about keeping everything just right on the outside. But I can see beyond that. And your hearts are like a tomb that's full of dead people's bones. That's what he saw on the inside. Because he saw that there was something that the law couldn't do for them, it was transform, regenerate their hearts. However, Saul didn't see that. He saw himself as one of the most zealous people for keeping the law as God had given it to them. Now, his education. Saul was... Highly educated by contemporary standards. It says that um, he, he, went, he was actually brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was one of the very best teachers of the law in Jerusalem. He was, uh, he was sometimes called the glory of the law. And he, they had a new title for him that was above rabbi that they hadn't assigned to anyone else. Just because he was so well versed in the law. He was so good at explaining things. He was the best of the best. So he practically had an Ivy League education. He would have been, uh, he would have probably spoken Aramaic first, but he would have become fluent in biblical Hebrew under Gamaliel, and he likely spoke Greek and possibly some Latin. So Saul was very well educated, very intelligent, the top of his class. As a Jewish student, he would have committed large portions of the Torah to memory. So he knew a lot of the Old Testament by heart. And he probably also read some non-Jewish literature, maybe um, Plato, Aristotle. Um, Those ideas were widely disseminated in the Greek communities around them, and the Jews didn't avoid them entirely. They had to be able to hold their own in debates. So Saul grew up 
countercultural, forced to defend his beliefs, and he dedicated his youth to studying the word of God. Get that, studying the word of God so that he could defend the true God. He was raised as part of a narrative, part of a story. And this was the story that he was told. It was a story about God and his people. God who had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be his special people. It started all the way back from before Abraham in the Garden of Eden. They knew that if you obey God, he blesses you. If you disobey, he sends you into exile. Same with the chosen people. You obey God, he blesses you. Disobey, and he will send you into exile. And for thousands of years, that's the way it was. The people of Israel, when they obeyed the law, they were blessed. When they disobeyed the law, they were cursed and went, they were given over to their enemies. And right now, where did they find themselves? Under their enemies, which meant that they had been bad. They had not been obeying the law. They were like the people in Egypt. They found themselves being cruelly oppressed by a foreign power, this time by the Romans who didn't care about God or his people. They cared simply about being rulers over the world they knew. So the real Jews who were concerned about deliverance were carefully going back to the prophets and to the law and saying, God, what do we have to do to find deliverance? How do we get deliverance from our enemies? Saul grew up with a keen eye looking for the Messiah because he knew there was a Messiah that was prophesied who would come to Israel to set things in order to restore the kingdom to Israel. And according to Daniel, there was even a timeline that had been given of 490 years. And the scholars in Saul's day knew that they were close to that 490 year period. They didn't know exactly when it ended, but they knew that they should be on the lookout for the deliverer that had been promised. Isaiah had, pro- had prophesied that the promised one would ter- return to rescue his people, to flatten the hills and level out the valleys, to prepare the way of the Lord. Ezekiel had declared that a new temple would appear and the glory of the Lord would come to dwell in it the way he had in the wilderness after their deliverance from, from Egypt. Malachi, the last prophet they had before about 400 years of silence, had had said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And this was one of the last prophecies that they had with regards to the Messiah. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for someone who would deliver them. And they knew he would come to the temple because the temple is where God came and met with humanity, right? That's where heaven came and met earth. Something you have to understand about the Jewish religion, it wasn't just looking for, how can I go to heaven when I die? They were looking for a kingdom. God had promised that he was going to bring his kingdom to earth, and he was going to rule in Israel. And he was going to establish prosperity and righteousness and peace, triumph over their enemies. That's what they were looking for. Not just, I want to go to heaven when I die. They were looking for the kingdom to come to earth, as was Saul. That's what he grew up doing, looking for God's kingdom to come. So if there were one word to describe Paul before his conversion, to describe Saul, 
Well, how would you describe him? One word. No wrong answers. Qualified? Anybody else? Zealous. I, that's, that's kind of what I uh, had thought of. Zeal. Right? He was a person who was zealous for God. He was saying, nobody is going to outdo me in serving God. If we want the Messiah to come, we have to keep the law to the fullest extent and nobody's going to outdo me. I'm going to do my level best to run after God, to learn his word, to learn the law, and to serve him to the best of my capacity. Nobody was going to outdo me. That's what his entire life had prepared him for. He was zealous. And right now, there was one threat to the truth that rose up above all the others. It was followers of the way. Followers of the way, they called it. There was a new way that had come around. And these people were making some crazy claims that were threatening the existence of the Jewish people under Roman rule, that were threatening the agreement they had made with Rome, and that were threatening... Moreover, the return of the Messiah, because how could he return if the chosen people were corrupted by false doctrines like this, by false claims? Saul had dedicated his life to the defense of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. And this was no exception. He was going to do it here again. He had heard about a crazy man from Nazareth who claimed a bunch of things to his followers And his followers were also crazy. They were believing him. He claimed that he was greater than the temple. The temple was where God came down and met his people. He claimed that he existed before Abraham, who was the first of God's chosen people. He claimed that he had come down from heaven and that he had the power to forgive sins, which they knew only God could do. His followers, he said, could pray to God in his name, and he called God Father. And they could receive what they asked in his name. When he met a Samaritan at the well, she said, We know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I am he. That's me. He claimed to be the Messiah. Essentially, he claimed to be the way that people could come to God, to the one true God that Saul was so zealous about defending. He even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And perhaps the worst of all was the fact that his crazy claims were backed with outrageous signs, wonders, miracles, Everywhere he went, he was healing people. People who were lame from birth got up and walked. Blind people saw for the first time ever. He even raised people from the dead. And that's what made his claims so particularly dangerous, is that he did all these magical things that deceived people into following him. Saul had heard about this stuff. And he knew that it was a legitimate threat. 
to his defense of what he believed to be truth about God. And so now, after Jesus had been executed for blasphemy because no one could call themselves the Son of God, no one could say, I am. After Jesus had been executed, his followers were now going around and, and adding to his crazy claims, they were saying, hey, yeah, he, he was killed, but he rose again and ascended into heaven. Saul was so passionate about defending the truth of the God of Israel that he was willing to upend his life and go out on the hunt for these heretics. Do you know how old he was by this point when he was out heretic hunting? Any guesses? 25? Pretty much right on. 23 to 28, somewhere in there. He was out hunting heretics on the road day after day, living a sacrificial life, passionate for truth, zealous for the God of Israel, for the one true God who said, you shall have no other gods before me. He was out hunting heretics. Acts 9 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he was literally going out to these towns, these outlying towns, and he was going to the, the rulers of the synagogue and saying, Do you know of anyone? Have you heard of anyone who claims, who's making claims about Jesus, who's following this new way? who's agreeing with this heresy that the leaders of the Jewish people had condemned. Damascus is about a six-day journey from Jerusalem. So one day Saul was riding up there with his men. And on the road to Damascus, he had lots of time to think. The sun was probably beating down hot on him. Plenty of time to think, plenty of time to pray. The Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. He said this multiple times a day. He kept repeating scripture to himself, praying. He knew well that that the God of Israel had revealed himself to prophets a number of times. He knew how Jacob, when he was at Bethel, had met God and he saw angels coming up, uh, coming down and going up a ladder to God. He knew how Moses was out in the wilderness and he had seen, he had encountered God in a burning bush, God spoke to him there. He knew about Joshua, who when he was on the trail, kind of like Saul, right? He was on the trail doing God's business. An angel appears to him, or maybe it was Jesus. And he says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. I'm with you. He knew about Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and all these other prophets who, as they spoke the word of the Lord, as they were zealous for defending the God of Israel, God would appear to them. God would reveal himself to them. And as he rode to Damascus, he may well have been thinking about these revelations and saying, God, why haven't you revealed yourself to us for the last 400 years? God, where are you? God, look at the way I'm living for you. Look at the zeal of my life. Don't you see what I'm doing for you? Can you step into our story? He had very likely longed for a similar experience. And now he was on the road to Damascus. Working for God. 
the God he wanted so desperately to please. And as he was on the way, approaching the city of Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven shone around him. Here it is. Revelation. God revealing himself to people. And the light was so bright, it says that Saul fell to the ground. And he hears a voice. And it's God himself speaking to him. Saul, Saul. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you just, you've been spending the last 20 years of your life zealous about God, zealous about serving God, wishing for a revelation from God, and here you have it. A light shines around you, and you hear the voice saying your name. Michael, Sam. But the voice didn't say what he had expected the voice would say. It didn't say... Saul, I see what you're doing. Be strong and courageous because I'm with you. He didn't say like he did to Jeremiah. Saul, I put words in your mouth. Now be, be, be courageous and speak the things that I give to you. The voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you fighting against me? Imagine the shock. You have been zealously serving God your entire life. You have been doing your level best to please him. And now when he finally reveals himself to you, he says, Why are you persecuting me? Somehow, Saul recognized the authority in this voice and in the revelation. And he can't help but answer with odd reverence, maybe with a mixture of dread and fear. Who are you, Lord? He calls him Lord. He recognizes who's speaking to him, but he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says again, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine the terrible weight of these words as they fell on Saul's ears as he realizes he has been misguided When he thought he was fighting for truth, he was fighting against it. When he thought he was doing God's service, he was actually hunting down his followers and having them killed. The God of the universe revealing himself to Saul, and it turns out to be none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man who had made these absurd claims that Saul thought were blasphemous. Before Abraham was... I am. Saul is left with no other option. He has to find out who this God is. He says, what shall I do, Lord? What do you want me to do? What else would you do, right? God reveals himself to you, and he's not who you thought he was at all. You're left with no other option, but God, what do you want me to do? Jesus says to him, rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. No further revelation, no further instructions, no explanation of how Jesus could be God. Simply a command to go into the city 
and wait. So the other people who were with Saul, they saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice. It says in, in Acts 22, in Acts 9, it says they stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. They didn't know what was going on. The revelation of God, the revelation of Jesus to Saul was personal. The people around him didn't understand it. They couldn't understand it or see it the way he did. That's the nature of revelation of Jesus. It is a personal revelation to our hearts. When God reveals himself to your heart and calls you by name, you'll know. Saul gets up, and although his eyes are open, he can't see anything. Somebody has to lead him by the hand. The man who was the ringleader, who was leading this group to go hunt heretics, suddenly became a helpless person who needed to be led by the hand. They led him into Damascus, where he went into the house of someone named Judas. And there he waited for three days. There was silence. God, who are you? What do you want from me? No answer. For three days, Saul didn't eat or drink anything. He was in a desperate state. What I believed about God was misguided. God, who are you? I need to know who you are and what you want from me. And you can bet that in those three days, Saul probably prayed like he never prayed before. I want you to know, if you find yourself in that place, and some of you may well find yourself in that place right now, where you desperately need further revelation from God, and your cry is, God, who are you? I want to know you. And God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Keep asking, because God is going to send an answer to a heart that asks those questions. Three days later, God appears to someone else in Damascus, Ananias, one of these followers of the way that Saul had come to, to hunt down. God speaks to him and he says, Ananias, he says, here I am, Lord. Like that, that's a good response, right? Here I am, Lord, send me, right? He says, rise and go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that's you, to come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias is shocked. He's like, Lord, that's Saul, the Saul that's hunting down Christians? He says, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those who call on your name. Word had gotten out. Saul had authority to come to Damascus, which was far from Jerusalem, and to bind anybody who called themselves a, a Jesus follower there. It's like, God, surely not that guy. Let me tell you about him. I'm pretty sure you've got the wrong guy in mind. And God says, no, but go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I want you to notice something about that. A mark of a true calling is that God will call you into suffering. He'll call you into a low road where you go low and you suffer for his sake. 
from the very outset, that was the calling of God on Paul's life. In fact, the apostles taught that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. So it says Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. He is who I thought he was not. What a dramatic turnaround. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring with him bound to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ from this from this point on, Saul's life was consumed with one thing, to make known the revelation that he had received about Jesus. That was his objective. I have to tell other people what I discovered about Jesus. He told the Galatians later, he said, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. The personal revelation of Jesus Christ in his heart was what transformed him so radically. From the point where instead of being a, a follower of Jesus' persecutor, he became a follower of Jesus who was, who was persecuted. This revelation changed the way that he saw Scripture. The entirety of scripture. Suddenly he was able to see Jesus through the Old Testament where he hadn't seen him before. Like the man on the road to Emmaus, his eyes were opened and he was able to see Jesus. The next time you read Paul's letters, read it through this lens. The way Paul received a revelation about who Jesus was. And you'll see it all through his, his letters to the churches. This is what his hope and his faith was founded on revelation in his own heart of who Jesus was. Some of you are still trying to figure out who Jesus is in your mind. You need a revelation of him in your heart. And if you've had a revelation of him in your heart, that's something that nobody can take away. He had stumbled into Damascus, a blind man, but he ended up leaving there in a basket, lowered down by the very people that he had come to bind and take to Jerusalem. Isn't that ironic? Now, there's part of the story here, a very important part of the story, that is left out. You probably think of, of Saul as getting converted, and he goes out into Damascus, and he immediately starts talking about Jesus to the people there. And then from there, he pretty much goes into full-time ministry, right? planting churches, sharing the gospel. There's a part that is very important for us as followers of Jesus to not miss. And he gives the details later in his letter to the Galatians. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to unveil his son to me, there it is, see that revelation, so that I might announce the good news about him to the nations, 
Immediately, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. No, I went to Arabia and afterward returned to Damascus. What did he do in Arabia? Why did Saul go to Arabia? What's there? What was his purpose of going down there? Now, if you come to a new movement like this, what's the natural thing to do? You go to Jerusalem, right? And you find the, the, the key players. Maybe you even find people who have followed Jesus around, who listened to his words and who saw the, the amazing miracles that he did. And you ask them about him, right? And you kind of snuggle up close to one of them. And become one of their disciples. But there was something about the revelation that Saul had received that was so dramatic and so momentous. He knew that the answers that he received could not come from another person. Now I want you to hear me out. That doesn't mean that people aren't going to teach you anything. Okay? There's people that are going to give you valuable input and that can disciple you. But there is no replacement for finding your answers from God. And Saul, for some reason, understood that early on. Can you imagine if you've, you've been spending the last number of years traveling around, hunting down people, you stood there and watched Stephen be stoned. You were the ringleader of all of that. And now suddenly you're doing a 180 and you're becoming one of those people. You're becoming one of those who you had accused of blasphemy for their claims about Jesus. Suddenly this Jesus, who was a blasphemer in your mind, reveals himself to you and says, I am the true God that you thought you were following. Can you imagine the impact that had on Saul? You see now why he had to run to Arabia. And this wasn't just a jaunt to a, an isolated place nearby. This was way down south of the Jordan. You know what else is in Arabia? Mount Sinai. And what happened at Mount Sinai? God revealed himself to his people. This is where the old covenant was ratified through the law, where God gave the law to his people. And they saw him on the mountain with thunder and with his voice. They heard him there. God had revealed himself to his people down in the wilderness of Arabia. And Saul was desperate for revelation from God. He knew he needed his answers from God. You know who else went to Arabia and spent some time there? Probably close to Mount Sinai, if not on Mount Sinai. Elijah. Remember after his stunning victory on Mount Carmel where God revealed himself and showed that he was the true God by sending fire down and the, the prophets of Baal ended up being killed. It was a great victory. And then the queen, Jezebel, said she was going to take his life, and he runs to Arabia. It says it was to Mount Horeb, which is either a name for Mount Sinai or for one of the mountains nearby. And he went there, and he sat in a cave, all depressed and discouraged. And what did he receive while he was there? Revelation. God revealing himself to Elijah. This time it wasn't an earthquake, or it wasn't an Loud noises it was in a still, small voice, God speaking to Elijah. And then he gets up and he goes where? To Damascus. Like Elijah, Saul went down to Arabia to seek God. 
We don't know exactly what he did or how long he was there. We know there was a three-year period from the time he came to Damascus, was converted, went down to Arabia, came back up to Damascus, and then had to leave. That was a three-year period. So we don't know how much of that time he spent to Arabia. But there's a lesson in this for us. When you encounter God, you need to find him. Just you and God. You know what we do? We read the room. This is how most of us live our Christian life. We look at other people. And we try to see if we're doing okay based on their reactions, right? And their responses. That's, that's, that's how we're wired. How many of you have watched the show Alone? Okay, so in Alone, there's a, a TV series where they'll send people out into the wilderness, kind of a hostile environment. Sometimes there's like real threats like bears and uh, wild animals and stuff. So it, it's, it's kind of uh, um, actually life-threatening sometimes. But they get sent out all by themselves with some camping gear. They can select 10 items, and, and they go out into the wilderness by themselves. Uh, there's no, no camera crew. They do all their own filming, and they're out there all by themselves to see how long they can make it on their own. Now they have to find their own food, and they have to make a shelter, and sometimes the environment is hostile. But you know what the most hostile thing is about that environment? Anybody guess? You're alone. You can't read anybody. You can't look at somebody else and say, wonder how they feel about what I just did. Or You're not reading other people. It's just you. And a lot of them break down after three, four days, five days, sometimes a week. It's incredible. It really quickly, they will break down to where they can't take it psychologically. They become so introspective. Grown, tough men will sit there crying wondering if they're being a, a good dad or a good brother. It's, sometimes it's like awkward and embarrassing because they break down so quickly just because they're alone. How many of you have been alone for more than 24 hours where you didn't see anybody or hear anybody, so you're completely away from everybody else? Raise your hand if, you've, if at some point you've been completely alone. You didn't see anybody or hear any other voice for 24 hours. One, two, three, four, five. Isn't that kind of, it's not six. Isn't that kind of surprising in a room this size? We're not alone very much. And I'm not saying you have to go down to Arabia and be alone for 40 days and 40 nights or for three years or whatever, whatever it was that Paul, Paul was down there. But you need to find out who God is alone. It's an important part of your walk with God. You can't always be reading other people for feedback because they're going to give you the wrong feedback. Hear me out. I'm not saying avoid discipleship and avoid community. I'm not saying that at all. God wired us for community and for discipleship and for interaction. That's a really important part. But there's a step in your Christian walk that requires you to find out from God who he is. It might be a short step. But it's a step you need to take. You need to find those answers from him. So he comes back up to Damascus after his time in Arabia. And he's still talking to people about Christ, about Jesus. And people start hunting for his life 
because they don't like what he's doing now. He's stirring up trouble, just like the people that he had accused of stirring up trouble earlier. Saul becomes the troublemaker. The Hellenists, the Greeks, they start hunting down Saul to kill him. And some of his disciples actually end up having to let him down over the city wall in a basket. Now he goes to Jerusalem. And in Galatians, he writes about it. And he says he was down there. He stayed at Peter's house for about two weeks. Okay, so now he's connecting with a disciple of Jesus and maybe finding out his perspective and getting more grounded in what he believes about Jesus, who he has discovered Jesus to be. It's being solidified by the testimony of other people. He's there for about two weeks and he keeps on sharing the gospel. He keeps on telling people about this Jesus that he encountered and, and it says in Acts chapter 29, sorry, Acts chapter 9, verse 26, it says, When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But there was one guy who was a lot like D.K. So that's pretty much the way I imagine Barnabas is like D.K. Okay, so there's your mental image. There was one guy who believed in him, and he said, I heard what happened up there in Damascus, how... He turned around, he made a radical turnaround, and he's been telling people about Jesus. And he's like, guys, this guy is legit. You can accept him. He took him and he brought him before the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. However, Saul continued to pose a threat to the church in Jerusalem. This time it wasn't because of his history. And because they were afraid that he was somehow an insider who would turn them over to the Jews. But it was because he kept talking. He kept talking and so persuasively talked about this Jesus that he had encountered. Okay, so he was one of the Jews, right? He was he brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. He was one of the top students in Jerusalem. Moreover, he had been squarely on their side. He was one of the heretic hunters who was going out and squashing out this this way, this false religion that had sprung up. And here he was testifying in Jerusalem, and he had become an unstoppable force. He could argue persuasively. He knew the law as well as any of them did. And he had been on their side, and now suddenly he's switched sides, and he's telling them, Jesus is the Messiah. I met Jesus. He revealed himself to me. His presence in Jerusalem stirred up the Jews and the Hellenists against the church. But God warned him to flee. Acts 22, Paul is telling the story and he says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, saw God saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Is that an interesting response? God's like, Saul, you need to get out of Jerusalem because they're going to they're gonna try to kill you here. And Saul says, mm, makes sense. 
good reason. Because look at the way I used to treat them. And God says to him, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So not only did God send him away, but the people in Jerusalem seemed to be happy to, to see him go as well. Acts 9 says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him up to Tarsus. Saul, go back to your home. They sent him back up to Tarsus. And you know what's interesting? One verse later. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. How would you like for that to be in the book of Acts? So like Nevin, Nevin uh, moved to North Carolina and the church in the Midwest had peace. I mean, that's pretty much what happened. Saul's influence had become so powerful and so disturbing that when he left, the church had peace. And he went back up to Tarsus. And here's another interesting thing. For 14 years, we don't hear anything about Saul. 14 years. He's back in Tarsus, his hometown. We don't know what he did there. Maybe he was making tents. We don't read of a church being planted there. It's possible that he shared the gospel with his friends back in Tarsus. Silence for 14 years. Do you know that about Paul? Do you ever think about Paul as spending the first, uh, a section of the first three years down in Arabia and then the next 14 years in Tarsus? Quiet. Some of you are in that stage. You are in your Tarsus. And you're learning to hear the voice of Jesus who revealed himself to you. You've had that revelation in your heart of who Jesus is. And you're learning to walk it out in everyday life. Saul had to do that. He had to learn what it meant to actually be a disciple of Jesus in the common, ordinary events of life. For 14 years, he was in Tarsus. When I was about, uh, when I was about, uh, I think, 22 or so, there was a point in my life where I was really seeking God. And I was desperate for some answers. And I thought, like, I'd look at my life and my heart was good to the best of my knowledge. I wanted God. I wanted what was best for my life. I wanted to serve God. I wanted to be engaged in his kingdom. I wanted to be active on the mission field. And there was just this numbness in me where I couldn't, I couldn't connect. I couldn't, I couldn't cry. I couldn't really feel much emotion. And yet I wanted God. And one night right here, it's probably, I don't know, 16 years ago or so. God met me right here. And he brought so many things to me, specific things. It was like, it was like there was a screen in front of me. And I had never experienced something like this before. There was a screen in front of me. And there were all these specific things in my life that God brought in front of me, one at a time, and said, will you surrender that to me? And when God does that, somehow he gives us 
the willingness to say, yes, and I really mean it, and I don't care what it costs. He did that for me. But I didn't know exactly what that was going to mean. I just know that in that moment of saying yes to one thing after another, God broke through to me. And there was a new power on my life through that encounter with God. And I thought that when you say yes to God and you surrender to him, that he blesses you, right? And stuff goes well. I married Melissa, who was the wife of my dreams, literally. And about a year later, we went to Honduras because we've been asked to go serve at a, a clinic there. And I was excited about serving God. I was planning to be a long-term missionary, and I hoped to end up in Africa. And I was pretty sure that if you give your life over to God, he blesses you, and things go well, right? The next two years, God mostly spent his time stripping away what was left of my self-sufficiency, my aspirations that I thought were about his kingdom, but were actually partly about me and what I was going to do in his kingdom. And it was incredibly painful. There were relationships that got broken. And uh, while we were down there, Melissa's brother, who was her best friend until I came along, drowned in a river between Honduras and El Salvador. And it was an incredibly painful time for us. And we came back just feeling so undone, just like God had stripped away everything that we had. Literally, I would physically feel this longing for God. God, I need you. That was like my prayer day after day. God, I need you right now. You are the water for the thirsty ground of my heart. And I had never meant it to that extent. But you know what it took to get me there? It took God stripping away lots of stuff. My success. Who I thought I was going to be. That's Tarsus. That's walking it out. And it might take 14 years but it's worth it. Remember um, sitting in a, in a small service one day, and I was just weeping the entire service long. I sat in another church. And I didn't even, I, like, I couldn't explain why. I couldn't explain what was going on in my heart. I just knew that I needed God again. And after the service, the pastor came to me, and he looked at me and he said, are you broken? And all of a sudden, there was just this revelation for me. I was like, yeah, that's what this is. See, I thought brokenness was like this plateau you get to, right? Where you've given everything over to God and, and now you're, you're broken, right? Brokenness is messy. It looks like your dreams not being fulfilled. It looks like giving up stuff that, that you thought was really good. It looks like being a failure. But when you really get to that point of brokenness, 
it doesn't matter anymore because you know what will happen? The cry of your heart will be, God, I need you. I need you more than anything else. You're the water for my thirsty, dry soil. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end at a place of brokenness because God fills. Okay? But I want you to know that if you find yourself in a place of brokenness, it's okay. This might be your Tarsus. This might be the place where you're learning to walk with God one step after another. I hate to repeat this morning, but are there tissues around? He will fill you. If you're in that place of brokenness, just open yourself up to him. God will fill you. And it'll be so much better than what you could have produced for yourself. You know what? One of the things was that I learned during that time was that God cares so much more. Thank you, buddy. God cares so much more about what he's doing in you than what he's going to do through you. Do you believe that? God cares so much more about what he's doing in you than what he does through you. What he does through you is important. It's great that he uses you to touch other lives and to speak life and hope and encouragement to other people. But what's so much better and more important to God is what he's doing in you. Because inside of you, as he's stripping away the self and the pride, your own aspirations, your ideas of what you're going to do with your life, He's replacing it with the character of Jesus. He's making you like his son. That's worth saying yes to. God, we thank you so much for your faithful work in our lives. Thank you for revelation of who Jesus is. And God, right now, I pray for anyone who has not experienced that revelation. I pray that they would encounter you, that you would say their name, and that they would know that you are real. I pray that you would answer the cry of their heart. I pray also for those who have experienced you, but who have not gone to you personally to find their answers of who you are. God, draw them apart. Allow them to hear your voice. Allow them to hear you speaking to the quietness in their hearts of who you are, the truth about yourself. And God, I pray for those who are walking through a Tarsus, who are anxious to know how you want to use them in your kingdom, who have all kinds of aspirations and zeal, who want to see your kingdom advance, who want to see you use them, who have received the Holy Spirit, but they're learning to walk that out, I pray that they would know you, Lord Jesus. That they would learn to walk with you, Jesus, in the mundane, in the everyday. And thank you that you are so faithful.
God, you're so faithful. You meet each one of us here this afternoon just where we're at. Continue to speak to us, to reveal yourself to us, and just enable us to say the next yes. In Jesus' name, amen.